You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. You always right to ask, how come I don't write back? Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, uh, and I am only joined by one fellow host this week, which means it's going to be a point one episode, and that one host, of course, is Michael Farmer. Michael, how are you doing today? Pretty good. The semester has started back, but it's not so early. Or so We're not so into the semester that that affects my life in any meaningful way. Okay, very good. So it's basically syllabus review and such things. Yep, I mean, and I, yeah, so that's, uh, I, I've, I've, yesterday I read the same, basically the same syllabus three times. I mean, nice. all the policies were the same, so I'm glad to have that one out of the way. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, David Grubbs, our third host, uh, is, he, he has uh, stopped being mild-mannered David Grubbs and has become Captain J-Term, uh, and so for the next for this episode and two more after this one, Michael and I will be tossing around some topics that David doesn't necessarily want to be in on or need to be in on or however you want to figure that. But David will be rejoining us in February, so don't worry, listeners, he will return. Do you know what uh, he's teaching in J-Term, Nathan? I believe he is doing the intensive uh, yearbook construction course, oh, Okay, if I remember right. Because last year I thought he taught mythology. Oh, you know, that could be, that could be, I know know he told us at one point, but I've forgotten. So go figure. Um, (laughs) well, at any rate today, we don't have a subject matter that Michael and I have generated. Instead, we are going to talk back to our listeners. A number of you have written in on email on our Facebook group, uh, and commenting on ChristianHumanist.org. And we're going to address some of those. If we missed your question, dear listeners, uh, feel free to email us or contact us by the usual means and reprimand us strongly for ignoring yours and picking other people. Uh, But we're just going to do a handful of these. It should be a fairly laid-back episode today. Uh, Michael, to lead off, a listener, and I'm going to probably mispronounce names too, so I'll go ahead and give that warning at the outset. Uh, but Julia Steger asked us in an email uh, to bring John Dunn into our conversation on death, uh, which was our episode 87. Uh, and let me go ahead and read her email. Quote, tonight I finished your episode on death. It was great. A lot to think about. One of my favorite death people who I kept hoping one of you would quote is John Dunn. He gives the the same obsessed and terrified vibe as some of the other authors you mentioned. Also, he happens to overlook the bodily resurrection thing. Uh, And yet, he has profound insights. Sometimes he's a bit quippy, but he at least tries to look death squarely in the face. Death be not proud. It seems Dunn speaks truths, usually, but at the same time, it's like he's somehow working at his own bravado in defying death winking, pardon me, at his own bravado in defying death. 
doesn't seem like he speaks with a boldness he doesn't feel but wishes he did. Or I could just be reading into things. Michael, uh, and that's the end of the quote. Michael, how much done are you comfortable taking on or would you rather punt this one to me? I mean, I'll talk about it for a minute, but then I'll give it to you because that's okay. really, that's really more your area than mine. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if he doesn't bring up the bodily resurrection at the end of Death Be Not Proud. I mean, he says that we'll wake and then death will be no more. So I, I, I guess that it, it could just be heaven or it could be the bodily resurrection. Uh-huh. I, I think she's right to point out the quippiness of that poem, that that it, it is so clever and so uh, chipper, almost, that, that it is hard not to see this crushing existential anxiety behind it, the way mm-hmm. a lot of Dunn's quippier poems have a urgency behind them that is not maybe immediately apparent in the words themselves. Uh, I mean... Yeah, so I, I guess I agree with her. What do, what, do you, what do you have to say? Yeah, I mean, that sonnet in particular, I mean, I, I, I like that adjective quippy. Uh, I might use it in, in the future. Uh, one of the things that I would say is that when you get into his uh, meditations, especially Meditation 17, the, the famous No Man is an Island meditation, also the source of the rhetoric or the injunction uh, to ask not who, for whom the bell tolls, right? Um, but at any rate, uh, I, I think that when you get into some of his more pastoral writings, to put it that way, uh, I think that he tends to take it more seriously. Uh, you know, uh, that's what's interesting. I, you know, death be not proud. I agree is a little bit flippant. On the other hand, meditation seventeen. If I could just read a little passage here. Uh, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a, pe- a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. So, I mean, Michael, the the idea that meditation 17 brings across is that not only one's own death but also anyone's death is a diminution which means Uh, you're constantly being chipped away at yes yes i think of uh, father zosima from brothers karamazov Uh uh-huh everyone is responsible for everyone yes yes the center of his ethics seems like they would get along pretty well now, Dunn also wrote a famous treatise on suicide, which I read about five years ago for comps and have entirely forgotten. Uh, I know that that's one of the more famous, you know, uh, texts on death from John Dunn. Unfortunately, uh, it's the beginning of the semester, Michael. I didn't prepare that text. So. Is he for it or against it? He is ambiguous enough to be very scary. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard to say whether he is for it or against it. He does say, he does, I mean, in a very significant way, frame the crucifixion as a sort of divine suicide. Uh-huh, which I, I've heard I've heard other people do that, and it's, a, it's an interesting rhetorical move anyway. Yeah, yeah. We didn't talk about suicide, did we? No, I don't believe we did. I mean, you know. I thought I would. <laughs> yeah, ex- existentialism and all. It's the only serious um, philosophical problem. We, we all have to do an episode on suicide. 
Oh, how dreary. And then you can redeem <laughs> yourself by finally reading that uh, Dunn piece. Well, I, like I said, I read it back in 2007, preparing for comps, but I've read and written a lot of stuff since then, so... <laughs> Sorry. Well, you can read it again. There you go. I can I can review, review. We are, um, I'm surprised we haven't done an episode dedicated just to Dunn as well, because I know all three of us like him. Oh, I'm sure that's coming down the pike. So, I mean, Julia, I mean, you might have just inspired one of our spring episodes because, as you know, we are always looking for topics. So, there you go. Well, at any rate, Michael, we also had some strong responses, as I imagined we might, uh, to our episode on Christian fiction. I very intentionally pitched it as something where I would take a position that our listeners would probably detest. And it worked. Um, looking through the blog's comments, I mean, do you want to take a run at what Charles or Coyle or other people had to say about the publishing phenomenon of Christian literature or, and if not, I mean, what would you add to the discussion in a direction different from where they were going? I already took a run at Coyle in the comments cause he, uh, uh-huh. he, he took offense at our, our offense is probably not the right word. Um, he, he took issue with our saying that there's probably not a substantial difference between Christian genre fiction and secular genre fiction. And he, he, he seemed to be suggesting that Dan Brown and the like were actually much better at telling stories than Christian fiction writers. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's not a topic I'm, I feel all that qualified to, to speak about other than saying that I remember being pretty wrapped by uh, Frank Peretti when I was in high school. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, Frank Reddy is is a genuinely skillful storyteller, I think. I mean, I think that his theology is a little screwy, and I mean, it, and it's not, uh, he doesn't create, you know, great literary characters that, you know, you would put up there with, you know, the Karamazovs or someone like that, but I mean, it's it's definitely something that keeps you turning the pages. I, I remember that as well from high school. I, One I thing can't I, imagine Dan Brown's much better at it. No, I, I, from what Mary tells me, you know, she has read Dan Brown. I have not. Uh, you know, I mean, his characters are largely forgettable. Uh, you know, I mean, it's all based on the cliffhanger plot. You know, will they escape from the evil Catholic Illuminati, so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things, Michael, and I, I'm going to bounce this off of you because I, I've been thinking about it, but I, I haven't really talked with anyone about it since then. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, if you did a thought experiment where the only books that counted as Russian literature were those that were approved of and published with the blessing of the Politburo of the Soviet era, uh, you know, I mean, you would probably come away with the idea that Soviet, that Russian literature was probably wretched, right? <laughs> Except for Bulgakov. Right, right, but I, I thought even he was eventually blacklisted. You know, I don't know. I know, I know that they supported. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You're right. A, a great deal of stuff right. we recognize is wonderful. It's a thought experiment. Yeah, right. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, I if you expanded that category called Russian literature so that it included Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, all of a sudden you've got an immensely rich tradition of literary writing. Right. Right. And I mean, I, I just have to think that, you know, if you expand the category called Christian literature, uh, and let's just keep the same two figures to include Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, then you've got a much richer phenomenon there. Which, so, I mean, which it, is why I think the, the category Christian fiction is not a good one. 
Right, right. The the genre literary fiction divide is a much better uh, genre is not even a good one. It's it's ambitious fiction versus non ambitious fiction. Let's 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 call it what it is. Let's not be afraid to be snobbish about it, and, <laughs> and say that say that there is fiction, even genre fiction, some of it that has the ambition to be art, and fiction that doesn't want to be art. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- that seems like a much better divide, whether it's Christian or Hindu or, you know, secular. Right, right. So in other words, I mean, you know, like, like I tried to get out in that episode, and I, I was definitely trying on some ideas. Uh, you know, that's why I wrote the episode, because I wanted to think about it with you guys. Uh, you know, I mean, if you would, on one side, you know, pit, uh, for instance, and see, I, I can't even think of good novelists right now you know cormac mccarthy against james patterson right uh you could conceivably consider both of those guys quote unquote secular fiction writers right but on the other hand you know i mean most people wouldn't because one of them wins you know pulitzer prizes and the other one sells millions of copies because people can blow through them without putting the book down there's and i think that go ahead go ahead no you go ahead Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I, th- I think that a similar categorical divide should be operative when it comes to Christian literature written by Christians. If we're going to have if we're going to have this category called religious fiction, I think um, we ought to appeal to Percy's. I think it's uh, notes for a novel about the end of the world where he gives his definition of what religious fiction should look like. And he includes in it Sartre and Camus. It's people who have an interest in ultimate concerns, you know, in, in God, mm-hmm. let's, let's not, let's not tillick our language up here, who have, who have, <laughs> who have a real concern with God as something other than a social structure. Right. Right. And, and yeah, so I, I, in fact, I, so I would, I would resist saying that McCarthy is even secular in that sense because he, he seems religious in the Persian sense, in the sense that Sartre's novels are religious or Camus' novels are religious. Not in the sense that they're dog- doctrinaire or dogmatic, they're certainly not. But in mm-hmm. a real sense, I would say they are more religious than something like, um, well, the Left Behind series or, or Frank Peretti. And I'm trying just to stick with things I've, you know, read enough of to have a gen- genuine sense. But I mean, All right, so, so in what sense then, because I'm curious now that you've made this distinction, in what sense do you think those novels avoid the ultimate concerns? Because they, they treat the ultimate concerns as c- cardboard figures to be moved around. Mm, okay. It, it, okay. It, turns, it turns something that is four-dimensional into something two-dimensional, or at least Sartre keeps them three-dimensional. All right, fair enough, fair enough. And David's not here to yell at me, so I, I feel comfortable saying that. <laughs> true enough, true enough. <laughs> I'm going to get a letter from him this uh, this week. There you go. And, of course, the other stream of, con- of uh, comments that was going there uh, was about, you know, the, the use of literature as diversion, right? Uh, and it's one of those things that, again, got me thinking about the fact that, at least since my kids have been born, I really haven't read any popular fiction i mean for lack of a better term right uh you know i have I, like i said i i trying to think here i mean i read the first chat the first left behind novel but i think that was before micah was born yeah that, cause that uh, was like 1995 wasn't it 
Yeah, but I read it. So I mean, I read it after several novels had been published, and it was a phenomenon that everyone was asking me about. Well, I was in high school when the third one came out. I remember because I think I spoke at our church. So. Um, oh, okay. So, so yeah, I think I think you're talking before Michael was born. Yeah. So at any rate, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, and the, and this is again one of those things that one of the sort of philosophical questions that I really hadn't thought about until our listeners brought it up to me. Uh, is the fact that when I consume popular narratives for just to just to try out a phrase here, uh, it's almost always in the form of movies or television because uh, on a very root basic level, uh, it's something where my hands don't have to be occupied, right? You know, when I'm reading a book, I actually have to hold the thing, whereas I can, you know, chase kids around while watching a television show or a movie. So, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those interesting things that, you know, I, I came to realize, you know, responding to our listeners that, you know, uh, one of the reasons that I don't read a lot of popular fiction these days is just basically that, uh, my hands aren't free to hold a book. <laughs> and I imagine that'll change in the next few years as my kids get older. But, you know, the, these last few years when, you know, just about every moment of the day, uh, I have to make sure my kids aren't putting themselves in danger because my kids have a death wish sometimes. Uh, I just really haven't read a lot of popular novels. I mean, is that, is that a phenomenon that makes sense, Michael, or am I rationalizing or what's going on? No, here? I mean, it makes sense, but I don't read popular novels either. And I don't have kids. It's just, I read all day. And when I come home, I don't want to relax by reading anymore. My eyes are tired. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, my wife and I have been reading to each other. We've been reading Harry Potter, so that's uh-huh. pop, that's popular fiction. But I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I've never read a whole lot of popular fiction. All right, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. It's, uh, it, you know, it's it, I, I like television too much. <laughs> <laughs> and see, so, yeah, I, you know, yeah, I do too. I mean, I, you know, that's what I watch now instead of movies, honestly. I do too. You get you get the long narrative, but it's broken up. It's it's, you know, I think it's a superior medium in a lot of ways. Fair enough. Fair enough. There, there's another episode we ought to do sometime. What's that? Television. Oh, we couldn't just do one episode on it, though. I mean, it'd have to be at least a trilogy. That's true. Maybe maybe we'll look at that. Although I don't know how many series overlap for us. Yeah, because I know the ones you're always always talking about, and I've never seen The Wire. I, yeah. Well, I take that back. I watched like 45 minutes of the first episode and said, I can't follow this. <laughs> I should I should try it again. Oh, it, it really is great stuff. So, Have you started Breaking Bad yet? No, I haven't. I, instead of that, uh, my wife and I started Sons of Anarchy because a lot of the English majors here at Emmanuel watch that. Breaking, uh, so Breaking Bad may be the best thing to ever be on television. I know people say that about The Wire. Okay. Well, I'll have to give it a, a try at some point. We also watched the first uh, three or four seasons of Mad Men on Netflix. A, a boy, show that I, I find so, so tedious. Oh, and it's so depressing, too. <laughs> well, I mean, it's wanna, funny. You may not want to watch uh, Breaking Bad. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I come away from... Uh, Sons of Anarchy, which is, you know, about gun-roaning motorcycle gangsters feeling better about humanity than Mad Men. <laughs> the outfits are nice, though. Yeah, true enough, true enough. 
<laughs> I watch mostly sitcoms, which I know you don't watch. Yeah, I and there have been a few that I've I've watched, you know, fairly faithfully. I mean, you know, I I don't know whether you'd classify Monk as sitcom or police procedural. It's sort of a mix of both. Yeah, somewhere in between. Uh, but I did watch Ugly Betty all the way through. Which I, I didn't watch that one. <laughs> it, it was funny. It was funny. I liked it. Um, but yeah, as far as, you know, current sitcoms, you know, I, uh, I think we watched the first season of Modern Family, but then our, uh, Hulu Plus membership lapsed, so we kind of dropped off of that one, but... It was pretty downhill from the first season. Was it really? Okay. Second season was good. Third season was terrible. Okay. Well, at any rate, yeah, I mean, I, I think that if we can compare notes and find some shows that we've actually watched in common... And then find uh, one with this, find ones that David has, has watched as well. I think that might be a problem too. Cause oh I yeah, I don't get the tricked. impression he watches much television. No, I don't reckon he does either. This so. may have to wait till next January. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Gives us time to uh, catch up on each other's shows. There you go. Yeah. In the meantime, we can watch a couple series in common and get those episodes rolling. Fair enough. Well, at any rate, uh, I want to go from. Um, the blog to Facebook. Uh, and the first message from Facebook I want to read is from our listener, Kyle Marrow. And again, forgive my pronunciation. Uh, he enjoys the podcast. He's interested in the humanities. Uh, so he asks us this quote, my question, do you know of any comprehensive humanities texts that could serve as a survey of the major musical, artistic, philosophical, and literary movements through history? I know this is a lot to look for in a single book, but do you guys have any suggestions? End quote. Uh, Michael, what books do you use when you teach your humanities courses at Crown, and what books beyond those might you recommend? My answer to his question is no, I do not know of a comprehensive <laughs> text that I would find satisfactory. I think it would have to be very long. I think you're better off getting good histories of each one of those things and then reading them in tandem. Mm-hmm. So I like Anthony Kenny's four-volume History of Western Philosophy. I think that's the best the best one for philosophy that I know of. Mm-hmm. Do you know that one, Nathan? No, I'm not familiar with that one. I, I read uh, the first several volumes of Copleston's big yeah. nine volume history. Yeah. Uh, this is much shorter than Copleston and it is, okay. it was written in the early 21st century. So the, the writing is a little less, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not like Copleston's difficult to read, but his, his writing is very 1940s. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, see, now I taught history of modern Western thought last semester, and I bought some books to bone up on the music and the art side of it, because I've never been trained in music or art. I've never been trained in philosophy either. But, uh, the, the music book I looked at is the Norton, Norton history of music, I think. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I got that one because I bought an old edition and it was $5. The new editions of that book are 80, 85. I also have a book by Jan Swafford called, I think it's, I think it's the vintage guide to classical music, which is excellent. Mm -hmm. And it'll, it goes through the, the major movements, the major composers and a bunch of minor composers. And then at the end, it gives you a list of works that should be in the library of any, anyone who is, you know, a fan of classical music. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I would recommend that one. I don't know of an art one. The art one I used is called, oh, it's something like the, A Crash Course to the Mona Lisa or something. It's a very glib <laughs> art history textbook that I don't know if I would recommend. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, I am partial to uh, William Fleming's book, Arts and Ideas. It was the uh, required art history textbook when I took Humanities at Milligan. Uh, but what's nice about it is at the end of each uh, discussion of an artistic period, it discusses the philosophy, theology, architecture, uh, all of these other disciplines, music, uh, that were going on concurrently with each phase of visual art. Uh, and I'm on the Amazon page right now. You can actually get a used copy of the 1994 edition, which was the copy that I used in my four semesters of humanities at Milligan College for one penny plus shipping. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that but, one's that is that one more or less comprehensive then? It is. the The focus is very heavily on the visual arts. So I mean, each chapter focuses on sculpture, painting, architecture. Uh, performance art, things like that. But like I said, each one, that's sort of the first two-thirds of each chapter, Michael, and then the last third of each chapter, whether it be the you know, classical Athens, whether it be the Baroque period, whether it be uh, postmodern art, uh, gives pretty nice brief summaries of the phenomena in literature and philosophy and theology and music and other disciplines that were going on at the same time. So it doesn't try to balance things out. It's very heavily weighted towards visual art, uh, but it does at least make those connections as you go. So that's something you would still want to use in tandem with a set of other books. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But as far as making those connections, I think what Fleming does nicely is point you to other artifacts and other texts that you can go to to read alongside your course in art history. What I would definitely recommend avoiding is heavily ideological <laughs> histories of Western thought. And I, I just know we're going to get a listener who recommends uh, that Schaefer book I had to use in in college. How uh, Should We Then Live? How Should We Then Live? And uh, Right, which uh, I reviewed, by the way, on ChristianHumanist.org recently. And I will, I will, I will uh, say again what what I heard somebody say about that book, which is Schaefer makes sense until he starts talking about something you know about. And then you think, Hey, wait a second. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't think you're going to find a single volume, but you can probably find, I don't know, four or five volumes. We, we should give him a literary text here. Shouldn't we? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was hoping you'd have one. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, as far as literary anthologies, obviously, you know, you've got your Longman, your Norton, your Broadview. Um, as far as, you know, a single volume survey of all the good stuff, I, I would be pressed to recommend one. I'll be honest. That's why I wanted to punt that one. <laughs> I wanted to punt it, too. I like the Norton, <laughs> I like the Norton anthologies quite a bit um, myself. Those are the ones I use in class. But the the truth is... You probably don't want to buy one, at least not if you're buying a new one, because they're expensive for a lot of stuff that's in the public domain. So yeah, you, you yeah. Pro if you don't mind reading on the Internet, and I do, but if you don't, you're probably better off reading a lot of that old stuff on the Internet and then buying a, you know, an encyclopedia of literary history that will give you the sorts of introductions to those pieces you would have found in the Norton. Or buying an old edition of the Norton. What's that? Right. Well, I, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely something you can do instead of the Norton. One other thing I would say is uh, if you go to colleges like Biola, Milligan, uh, places with sort of 
humanities or great books programs, a lot of times they will have syllabi that you can download uh, to give you a sort of course of reading uh, if you are interested in pursuing those things on your own. So uh, if, if I taught any such course, I would certainly make my syllabi public, but as it stands, I don't right now. So. Yeah, but when, when are you going to put your classes up on iTunes U? See, I don't lecture, so... I mean, if I if I put my classes up on iTunes, you you would hear me say, "So, what do you think about this?" And then you have, have to mic the crowd. What now? You'd have to mic the crowd. Right, which I've heard people try to do, and it sounds awful. Because <laughs> uh, the uh, what is the name of that podcast? The Tolkien Professor, which is a very good podcast, uh, but he did that with some of his medieval literature courses, and I mean, it's it's impossible to listen to for me. Just because the sound quality shifts every time the microphone changes. It's good news, though. It means yeah, the uh, the the podcast is not yet going to replace our uh, teaching jobs. No, not by any means. Now, not I yet. will say just just a little uh, promotional bit here. Um, I am this May teaching a course called uh, Religion and Philosophy. That's how it's listed in the catalog, and I sort of inherited the course title. Uh, but I am hoping. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying this publicly so that maybe I'll be accountable for it. Uh, I'm hoping to record a series of podcasts on uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's Beyond, uh, no, not Beyond Good and Evil, but the genealogy of morals for that course. Oh, because we're going to be reading through that together. Uh, so hopefully I'll be able to put those up on a podcast stream, put them on probably iTunes, probably not iTunes U, because I just like podcast better than iTunes U format because you can do more with it. Um, but, you know, uh, keep your ears open, listeners. When I have that somewhere uh, near presentable, I'll probably put that up for the public. I'm teaching uh, that text in March, Nathan, so make sure you get it done before then so I can steal all your insights. Excellent, excellent. Well, at any rate, uh, sticking with Facebook here for a second, um, Brett Gilbert, who's another one of our listeners who comments a fair bit on Facebook, uh, he also chimed in uh, with a bit of praise for us, which we always like, uh, and it goes like this, quote, Thank you, Christian Humanists, for piquing my interest in Paradise Lost. I probably never would have gotten around to reading it if it hadn't been for your podcast. I absolutely loved it. As a bookworm and as a Christian, I couldn't put it down. Next stop, Moby Dick, end quote. I'll, I'll go ahead and speak for myself, Michael, and say it's great that people are discovering some of these great texts because we mentioned them on the podcast. Uh, if you could point our listeners toward a text or two to take on in 2013, where would you point first? Moby Dick, probably. I mean, that's, okay. that's the kind of great American novel that most people have never read. Uh-huh. Uh, mostly, I'm just happy whenever anybody says they read something I like because of what we said on the podcast. Especially mm-hmm. if it's something that has such a reputation for being difficult as Paradise Lost, for that matter, Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. Now if people just start picking up being in time, huh? <laughs> I, I don't know if I want to be responsible for that, Michael. <laughs> I know, I feel terrible. I got one of my students like super into Heidegger, and he presented mm-hmm. his project in front of the class, and uh, you could see it in his eyes. The Heidegger look people get, the, the, way, yeah. the way your brain melts just a little bit, and then you start to understand Heidegger. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, I just knew I'd ruined his life forever. 
Well, it's interesting. My uh, my former student, he's now in grad school at Clemson, Caleb Milligan. Uh, he and I had lunch back in December and uh, chatted about Heidegger for a while because he's now using some uh, being in time in a literary theory class that he or was using it. I hope he's turned in his paper by now. Uh, but he's using some some being in time on a literary theory paper he was writing. So it appears that, you know, there's there's a few people in the world who are reading Heidegger because of us. And I feel vaguely guilty about that. But I. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I would say anything. I mean, anything. It, it, it's so nice to to have that effect on people, especially people like Brett, who I've never heard of. Okay. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's one thing it's one yeah, thing to yeah. do it with someone you you know, but to have that effect on strangers is really flattering and dangerous. Mhm. Oh, absolutely. What, absolutely. what will we make Brett read next? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I obviously we mentioned Dante a lot. We mentioned Milton. Uh maybe John Donne will be the next person we talk about on every episode because we do kind of go in streaks that way. There was a while there we were talking about Plato in every episode, and a while we were mentioning Milton at every turn. Uh, maybe Dunn will be our guy for 2013. No, we could do uh, worse. Say again? We could do worse. Plus, Dunn is fairly easy to read. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Except his sermons, I mean. Oh, and see, I don't even think his sermons are that bad, so. Oh, there's there's I... just 35, 40 pages. I remember reading Dunn's sermons and thinking, how could anybody sit through this? let alone pay enough attention to write out the uh, sermon notes. Right. Now, if there's one text I wish I could teach at some length, I unfortunately I'm limited to excerpts because of the nature of our course offerings here. It would be the Iliad of Homer. And I know you're not much for Greek epic, Michael, but uh, I actually dipped into it some planning for my Western Authors 1 course this spring over Christmas break and just remembered how much I love that text. And I mean... Uh, given that the antecedents are so sparse, uh, just the amazing literary things that the Greek text of Homer does. I uh, actually taught that in excerpt, of course, last semester and was surprised how much I enjoyed it. What translation mm-hmm. are you using? Uh, I Let's see here. The, the translation that I usually read from is Robert Fagel's recent translation, I think 1996. I taught out of uh, Lombardo, Stanley Lombardo, and it was I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and before that, I think I'd always read Lattimore. Okay. Who's All kind right. of a fuddy-duddy. Now, what's fascinating about uh, Fagel's uh, is that the more I read his translation, the more I think that, uh, and I forget the kid's name, Michael. If, if you can help me out on this, you would be just an amazingly useful fellow host here. But uh, the Wheaton grad who was George W. Bush's speechwriter, do you know who I'm talking about? I don't. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Well, at any rate, I mean, there was some, you know, press on him during obviously George W. Bush's administration because he was such a young guy. Wheaton grad, you know, wrote a lot of his much maligned speeches during the Iraq war era. Uh, but what's fascinating is I, I came to uh, Fagel's translation probably around Uh, 2007, 2008, in the waning years of the Bush administration. Uh, And I would almost, yeah, I would almost put down a wager that that is the translation of Homer that Bush's speechwriter read in college. (laughs) 
<laughs> because there are little phrases from Fagels that whenever they would pop up, I would think, okay, why in the world is Fagels putting bits from George W. Bush speeches into his <laughs> translation of Homer? Uh, but then I realized that Fagels published the translation in 96, so he couldn't have. So it's one of those things, you know, it, it's, it, it's a fascinating little thing. But just, just to give the obvious example, uh, there are several places where the poet praises the Achaeans because despite the fact that the tide was turning against them, they did not cut and run. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> also strategery. So. No, strategery unfortunately did not appear, although that would have been phenomenal. <laughs> of course, since George W. Bush didn't actually stay, stay, say strategery. Oh, did he not? Was no, that, no, was that's that a, a, like I can see Russia from my house. That comes to us from an SNL sketch. That's amazing. So now we've got strategery. We've got I can see Russia from my house. We've got I invented the internet. Uh have they have they managed to implant anything on Obama yet? Do you know? I, I don't know. I don't think they make fun of him very much. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure folks have noted that. So I'll just leave that as it as it <laughs> as it lies. Um, but yeah, John Donne, I would definitely say would be a good one. Homer is one that you know I wish that I could teach. Uh, maybe we'll do an episode on the Iliad sometime. Uh, even though we did an, an episode on epic movies, I think we're at the point now where we can overlap episodes a bit, right? Probably just flatly contradict ourselves and don't even realize it. Oh, sure, sure. But I just mean since we're getting up towards the three-digit episode numbers, I think we can start revisiting text. I would think so. <laughs> uh, well, at any rate, Michael, since I'm at the helm, we've mainly focused on listener feedback that was interesting to me. Uh, in your view, what have I missed from the latter days of 2012, or if you prefer, uh, what sort of feedback is your favorite sort to get, or you can answer both of them if you like. I will answer both of them. My favorite, uh, my favorite sort of feedback to get is the kind where people add text to our discussion, so when we discuss an idea, they say, hey, that reminded me of this and that. And we've talked about several of those today, and I'm about to talk about another one, but uh, that is... By far my favorite type. Uh, it's like being in a seminar class. So uh, keep that one coming. What's your favorite kind of listener feedback? Oh, I mean, I'll admit, I mean, just because I'm so insecure about what we do and, you know, is this doing anyone any good? I like the feedback where people, you know, actually talk about, you know, I enjoyed your stuff and, you know, I, I realize now that, you know, Christians can do this humanities thing and do it intelligently. You know, I mean, it's one of those things where if people confirm what I hope we are doing. Yeah. I mean, it goes, it goes without saying I like that kind as well. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, anyway, the the feedback that you're going to talk about, the one I, the one I talked about was, uh, I wanted to talk about rather was from Jonathan. I I guess it's pronounced Ribesman. I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. he, he posted to the Facebook and he said, um, regarding the death episode, you discussed the death of I- Ivana Ilyich, of course. I always pair that in my mind with Catherine Porter's The Jilty of Gra- Jilting of Granny Weatherall. The closing lines of both are very similar, and so it seemed to me that Porter's story is intended as something of a challenge to Tolstoy's story. Are you, any of you familiar with Porter's story? And if so, how do you think it should be understood in relation with Tolstoy's? I had not read that story before he left that comment, and so I went and read it, and I think it is very insightful that he that he said that. I would not have come up with it. 
immediately. The jilting of Granny Wetherall is all about a woman who was jilted 60 years before the action of the story by a man she wanted to marry, and, and she's kind of held it inside of her at the very depth of her being for all these decades. And then at the end of her life, as she's on her deathbed, it comes up again, and she asks God for forgiveness and asks for a sign that she's been forgiven, and she receives none. And so the jilting of Granny Wetherall is twofold, right? She is, on the one hand, jilted 60 years earlier by this man, and on the other hand, she is jilted by God at the very end of the story, which, as Jonathan notes, is kind of the opposite motion of Ivan Ilyich, who is a... Uh, keep this a family-friendly podcast and call him a cad for most of his <laughs> life. And then at the at the end of his life, he on his deathbed, he asks for forgiveness and receives it and has this moment of epiphany. And, and um, Porter seems to be saying that uh, that ain't always necessarily so. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that it, in fact you can your your life can be pointed toward this direction and never actually reach it. Uh, so I don't know if he came up with this Tolstoy Porter reading. If he did, I would uh, suggest he write that in a in a paper and send it into a journal because I think that's that's very insightful and something I never would have mm-hmm. considered, but which makes total sense to me. Very good, very good. Well, at any rate, Michael. I mean, I knew this was going to be a relatively short episode, which is all right. Um, Next week, though, we're going to get into our our pair of you know genuine point one episodes, and you're going to be at the helm. So, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about pragmatism, a philosophy both of us have half a foot in, <laughs> which is half a foot more than Grubbs has. So, I figured it would be a good time to talk about it. Right to knock this out of the way, so Grubbs doesn't have to touch it. So two not two very non-specialists are going to fumble their way around with uh, with pragmatism. Oh man, you just said a mouthful there. I just I just uh, want, I just want to prepare our listeners for our incompetence on the subject. Yes, yes, very good. Uh, well, thank you, Michael, for joining me and for responding to these user messages of email and blog and Facebook variety. Uh, in the meantime, while you're waiting for that episode, listeners, you can find us at, of course, ChristianHumanist.org, our website. You can find us on Facebook. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can go to iTunes where you can leave us a review or you can give us some stars. We prefer units of five. Uh, in the meantime, on behalf of Michael Farmer and the absent David Grubbs, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be strong. Always right to ask How come I don't write back Well, I can tell you But then I have to write A letter that would start Found it in my heart not to forgive you.
Since you crossed my side 